Hello, fellow foodies. Welcome back. This is Dr. Cassandra Quave, your host for Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious. This week, we're going to dive into the topics of food justice and building culture and community around our food systems. And to explore this topic, I'll be speaking with Naveen Akana, who is the co-founder and executive director of the Heal Food Alliance, a national alliance of organizations that build collective power for transformed food systems across race, sector, and geography. For more than 20 years, Navina has cultivated justice through food and farming systems, working as an educator, a community organizer, facilitator, and more. Thanks so much for joining us on Foodie Pharmacology, Navina. Yeah, I'm glad to be here with you. Thanks for having me, Cassandra. Yeah. So as I was exploring um, the, the Heal Food Alliance website, I came across this description of food that I'd like to read to the podcast audience to kind of kick us off. And it's this. Food is our most intimate and powerful connection to each other, to our cultures, and to the earth. By working together, we can build a system that is healthy for our families, accessible and affordable for all communities, and fair to the people who grow, distribute, prepare, and serve our food. To transform our food system is to heal our bodies, transform our economy, and protect our environment. And I think this is just such a powerful statement, Navina, and, and a great place to start in our discussion. So can you tell us a bit more about the Heal Alliance and how this alliance supports this ethos around food and community? Yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks for grounding us with that. That's the that's the premise that we build our whole platform around, right? That we know that um, food and our food system touches all of our lives, right? Whether whether we have enough access to it, whether we can afford it, whether we actually have the right and the means to grow food ourselves, we have the ability to procure it. Um, it touches all of us. So if we even just think about this this country in the United States, right, all 300 million people here um, eat every day, right? We know mm-hmm. right now during COVID, as things are even worse than they were before, one in three families is going hungry. So not to say that everyone has easy access to food, but that it touches all of our lives. And um, when we look at how that shows up, right, it's like 21.5 million people work in the food system right now. So that makes it the biggest sector, mm-hmm. <laughs> economic sector um, in this country. And five of the eight worst paying jobs are in our food system. Um, we know that our food system is, as it is right now, it's fully responsible for at least a third of greenhouse gas em- emissions, right? So when we're talking about climate chaos, we know that our food system as it is, is both a driver of climate chaos and of course is directly impacted when there are droughts or wildfires or floods. Um, It is people who are most closely connected to the land that are most most readily impacted by those disasters, right? Um, It shows up all the time, for example, kids and whether they are able to learn in schools. Like if they did not have we all know when we eat better, we're, like, <laughs> we're able to pay better attention. Um, we know that we, a lot of the you know behavioral issues and things like that that um, young people face in schools have to do with whether or not they're like fed well or whether they're you know I know I get cranky when I'm hungry, right? It happens yeah. to all of us. <laughs> um, there's just so many aspects of our lives, whether we're talking about our immigration system or like we already said, you know, the environment, labor, um, so many different aspects where food literally, you know, 
is the reason why policies are shaped the way that they are, why our society is shaped the way that it is. And, um, and for so many of us as people in community, in our families, with our friends, we come together around food, right? We like invite people in for a mm -hmm. meal that we made. Um, for so many of us, it's the way that we understand our connections to our culture or our traditions, right? It's like, you know, my friend's grandmother's lasagna, right? Or like my, my grandmother's pickle, you know, whatever it is that um, like this recipe, you got to try this thing. We become known for those, um, those foods. And that's so much of what brings us together as community. So, so, so we know that as a society, right? That food is yeah. like this, um, whatever, like the, the hub in a wheel that connects to mm -hmm. everything. And what I, and so many of the folks that I've been in movement with for a long time now, we're seeing is that so many of us were, all confronting this food system that is really dominated by just a handful of corporations um, is really upheld by both a historical and current reality of racism, of um, stolen land, stolen labor, stolen lives, um, but that we were each trying to fight pieces of the system on our own, right? So like workers, mm -hmm weren't getting paid well enough and we're working under bad conditions. Farmers are making less than poverty wages in most cases if they're independent farmers. Um, many people, whether in urban or rural areas, don't have access to enough good food. Um, we know that we're facing mass biodiversity loss, all of these things, and uh, that none of us on our own can take on this entire system, right? So part of the vision for HEAL is bringing together organizations, movement, uh, infrastructure from different sectors to really be able to together name that we're facing a shared problem mm -hmm. and that if we can um, understand each other's issues enough and fight for each other's issues enough together, then we can amass the collective power to confront those who actually hold the power right now and are the tiny group of people that are actually benefiting from the system as it is right now. That's great. And the the name HEAL in your system stands for a health, environment, agriculture, and labor. And I love I love the symbolism there because it is about healing our bodies. It's about healing the planet. It's about really understanding how all of these very complicated systems <laughs> um, are intertwined. Yeah. Can you can you give us some examples of the types of activities um, that the Alliance is involved in when it comes to supporting um, these spaces and the people that really contribute to the food system? Yeah. So um, just to go back to our name for a moment, I think sometimes mm -hmm. we um, we're just like, oh, yeah, we're Heal Food Alliance and we named that acronym. But you're, you're absolutely right that so much of this is about healing just who we are as people mm -hmm. and what it means to be in relationship with each other and be in relationship with this amazing planet that we live on. Right? Yeah. So like that's, that's a huge, just like what we're, you know, what we're envisioning is restored relationships between people and our planet. Um, but in terms of how, like how we do the work that mm -hmm. we do. So HEAL launched with, you referenced our platform already. We, we launched with this very ambitious multi-generational vision for change, right? It's laid out 
in 10 planks that are about everything from dignity and fairness for workers and their families to um, resilient regional economies and sustainable farming and ranching and ending factory farms and so on. Um, folks can read about that on our website and mm -hmm. dig into the kinds of policy solutions and things like that that we offer there. But um, but obviously that is that is a long-term vision and there's very like concrete steps that we need to take together to be able to get there. So. HEAL organizes around five basic core methods. Um, one of those is that we you know, work to connect and unite those groups, like we already mentioned, around the country who are building from this, that same place of values alignment um, and shared vision for change. Um, so we do that through literally, you know, in, in non-pandemic times, like hosting convenings of, of leaders and organizations, mm -hmm. um, particularly Black, Indigenous, and people of color who are leading this change in their communities and bringing folks together to be in a room, share culture, share story, strategize together. Um, and that's the, where you know all of our campaigns and programs and everything are birthed are through those relationships and that building that happens through connecting and uniting groups. Um, the second core method, as we call them, um, is around really um, building a shared political analysis and doing political education together. So mm. if folks go to our website, you'll see that we have put together, we started putting together these toolkits that align with our platform for real food. And so there's a toolkit right now that includes a little explainer and some interviews with members and resources and a short video that, you know, people can use on social media and things like that. But that really describes like, what does it mean when we say dignity and fairness for workers and their families? Like, how do we get where we are right now? And yeah. you know, um, what does it mean for us to transform that? So we try to do some public facing political education, but we also know that the policies, the policy makers um, that uphold this system, that they haven't, they haven't worked for our communities, right? We've been, um, we've been facing hundreds of years now of systemic um, oppression and extraction and exploitation. And so um, one of the things that we're trying to do is really cultivate the next generation of political leaders. So we run a school of political leadership wow. to, train up to be able to um, organize campaigns in their own communities and mm -hmm. understand you know, how, to, um, how to look at power and map that out, how to do communications and um, organize in teams together in their communities to do that. Um, we also organize campaigns collectively as an alliance. So we are running a couple of campaigns right now where we are um, working to shift where money that goes towards food goes, right? So mm -hmm. um, your audience probably knows a lot about this already, but essentially when we look at the food system right now, there are about five corporations that really control the whole thing. Like 95% of food in this country is a corporate product. And mm -hmm. if you look at certain sectors like the meat industry or fertilizers or seeds, it's, it gets less and less and less, right? Four companies control beef and three control um, the seed industry and so on. Um, so there are a couple of key places where a huge amount of food is purchased, right? Public institutions like schools, um, uh, hospitals, places like that, um, big cafeterias, big food service companies are another one. So we we actually run campaigns to shift where public dollars are going towards um, food and run campaigns to shift how the corporations themselves are um, profiting. 
from each other and locking out small farmers and locking out sustainable practices. Um, and then we do work together to advance a shared narrative and try to shape culture in that way. And of course, to really organize the resources that are needed for BIPOC communities to be able to lead in the ways that they have been leading but have been completely under-resourced in doing so. So um, those are those are kind of like the five core methods. That's great. So this there's a couple of things that come to mind. Number one is, you know, how important it is to get involved in in political advocacy. And I'm just thinking, you know, when when we think about the farm bill in the United States, it's not really a bill about small farmers. It's a bill that supports industrial agriculture and really subsidizes things. And so do 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 does this training program kind of get into the meat of those aspects of policy and um, it's, 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 you know, very complicated, um, huge budget put towards, towards these things. So how, how do you even begin to, to address something that's just so huge in, in our, in our political economy? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, um, you know, the, the farm bill is something that I think most folks don't realize that there is this huge, like, $300 billion piece of legislation, right? That literally writes the rules of like, can we just repeat that? Yeah. $300 billion yeah. again, mm -hmm. also heavily, heavily positioned towards a lot of these, you know, corn for meat rearing and, and not necessarily towards health, healthy foods that are going to our communities. Yeah. And not necessarily towards, you know, the kinds of environmental conservation and stewardship mm -hmm. that, that many growers you know, they're the, they're the ones who have been stewarding our land for a really long time and need to be supported to be able to do that. Yeah. But instead, they're being forced to, you know, be part of a market system that really is about subsidy of those kinds of crops that you mm -hmm. that you mentioned. So, um, the with, with a bill like the Farm Bill, which comes up every five years, it's a really important bill for our communities and our, you know, movements to be paying attention to um, so that we can advocate for the things that are actually, you know, going to work for people and work for the planet. And so with something like the Farm Bill, what HEAL will do is we have, um, so we have a number of different kinds of organizations. And one of the things that we really rely on is the diverse skills and resources that each organization brings to the table, right? So we have a couple of member organizations who are really strong policy advocacy groups, right? Like the National Farm to School Network that's mm -hmm. focusing on how much money goes to um, school lunch programs, for example, and what kind of food ends up in school lunch programs, the Union of Concerned Scientists that's based in DC, and they're really committed to making sure that we have strong environmental and ecological standards that are gonna you know, guide food and agriculture programs. Um, and organizations like those, you know, they have a lot of expertise in how to, how to work on policy. So what we will do as HEAL and as our membership is make sure that we're in deep conversation with our membership about what's actually needed we will learn some tools and skills from those member organizations who really hold that expertise. And then we'll organize um, uh, you know, fact sheets and explainers and put together tools that our members and their communities can use with policymakers, right? So they can easily pick up the phone, have a conversation with a policymaker um, and be able to 
advocate for the kinds of changes that are needed or collectively will write you know, some comments and put forward a public statement together. For example, right now, um, the USDA, thankfully, because we have a new administration now, um, is actually taking comments on climate change and what needs to be shifted um, in terms of climate policy via the USDA. So HEAL is organizing a set of comments um, we're submitting to the USDA around you know, what needs to happen to ensure environmental justice, what needs to happen to make sure that Black, Indigenous, and people of color farmers can actually use their ingenious and expertise on the land um, and be fully resourced to do that. Um, how do we make sure that workers and farmers are protected in the face of wildfires and things like that? So we're organizing comments. We're making sure our members have the tools to be able to do that themselves. Uh, and then we'll put for that forward together. Um, and make public statements around that. And, you know, we'll keep doing that as different policy opportunities come up, like the Farm Bill, mm -hmm. um, which is next, just for your listeners to know, is next going to be up 22 or 23. Um, okay. So we have a couple Soon. years of lead time yeah. to, like, um, build everything up. But at some point, we need to completely <laughs> transform that Farm Bill in a way that's actually going to serve people on the planet. Um, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. And I, I mean, I think food and the climate crisis are, are intricately intertwined. If you think about a lot of our, you know, land use patterns, not just in the U.S., but also globally, we have vast tracts of, of forest lands that have been, you know, destroyed for corn and soy, for um, palm oil, you know, all of those, those processed foods that we so enjoy, they come at a cost in some cases. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think you know. Um, I mean, you know this well as somebody who studies ethnobotany. That for for thousands of years, people were growing food or cultivating food, yeah. and in relationship with the land, and in ways that weren't causing mass yeah. climate chaos and mass destruction. And there's so much for us to learn from right now. I'm not saying like we need to go back to hunter gatherer status or anything like that, but there is so much wisdom in traditional knowledge for us to learn from. And instead of continuing this fast-tracked idea towards more and more monoculture or this idea of a globalized consolidated food system we we've seen i mean covid has revealed for anyone who didn't know that before right that the yeah. level of consolidation just doesn't work right it's mm -hmm. not the system is not nimble enough to adapt to the needs of real communities in the face of crisis and we're going to keep facing more and more crisis as climate chaos accelerates, right? So there's so much learning for us to do around how we actually can have agroecological food systems mm -hmm. that are not, it's not about having a, a separate ecology from community, right? It's about having agroecological systems that are really based in community and meeting community needs um, that are a different, a different scale and different um, decision-making processes than what we have right now. Absolutely. And, and we'll incorporate or reincorporate a lot of the biodiversity um, that we lack in, in, in broad scale monoculture. Well, speaking of COVID and the shifts that we've seen in communities, and since Heal has, you know, your fingers are on the pulse of communities and farms and, and community gardens, have, have you all observed any changes in kind of community engagement with gardening? I mean, you can see in some way when you go to, you know, local nurseries or, you know, places where you can buy seeds and tomato cages, at least here in Atlanta, they've sold out of a lot of things they did last spring. And again, we see a lot of these are selling out again. So it seems on the surface to indicate that people are getting more into home gardening for vegetables. But um, is this observed as well? 
Yeah, I think that people, that, that's been happening everywhere, right? Which is great, mm-hmm. right? Folks are like, oh, let me plant my own food. Let me like understand my garden better. I, you know, people are seeing what kind of bird species come around um, mm-hmm. in a different way. And that's, that's wonderful. And I think it's really, um, it's really a special time that folks, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think, I don't think anyone, or I hope that folks will not, you know, completely remove themselves again from at least having some relationship yeah. with how their food is grown. But I think even more than, um, than just that, maybe one of the things that I want to emphasize is that, you know, when, when we first confronted this pandemic, when the crisis hit, the folks who were most prepared to mm-hmm. be able to actually, you know, feed their communities or grow food and try to, you know, get it to folks are folks who are, are based in community and already have the relationships that yeah. are necessary to like even know where things are needed. Right. Um, and what we, what we found, you know, just talking to our membership was folks were really easily able to pivot from running, for example, like running a garden program to saying, you know what, we know the farmers here and we know what communities need food. So we're going to just, instead of using our truck to just pick up some soil right now, we're going to go pick up some food from those farmers and make sure it gets to community. Right. Or we're going to um, start a, a, a feeding program, like through a community mm-hmm. kitchen that we have access to or whatever. We, we really saw that it was primarily BIPOC folks based in community. They were able to like take that leadership and yeah. um, swiftly respond at the same time. They, as has Know, been happening don't necessarily have access to basic resources to be able to do that right things like a refrigerated truck that costs maybe you know fifteen thousand dollars or a, a suitable washing or packing station to be able to box up the food mm-hmm. to give to folks um and what we what we were reminded is how often institutions like the usda and other um government programs that are supposed to be supporting farmers to be able to feed community, right? That's what the farm bill was actually designed for is for farmers to be able to feed community, how much they have failed um, frontline groups and how much they have failed particularly BIPOC communities to be able to do what's needed for us to have those crisis food systems. Um, And I think part of, part of what it means for us to be in real community going forward is making sure that that infrastructure, that basic infrastructure is in place in our communities for us to have the resilience needed um, going forward. And so um, I, th- I think what that means sometimes is just uh, like, like really becoming more aware of like who owns what in our communities and how we, um, how we invest together into that kind of like stewardship of the resources. Um, yeah. And I know that that's like a really broad term, but to think about, you know, for example, like um, what does it mean for us to move from um, five grocery brands basically owning everything, including all of the trucking and the distribution sites Mm -hmm. for food to get to communities to us moving to a place where actually, you know, um, we have a community run food cooperative that can store um, food and that has a trucking system to be able to get, um, not just produce, but also grains and, and meat and other yeah. things that you know need to eat. And and we have to both build out those systems in our communities and fight the bad policies and bad corporations that are making it impossible for those to thrive. Yeah. Yeah. 
it, I immediately am thinking of, you know, the utility of such an approach and also addressing food deserts, right, where especially BIPOC communities are, are disenfranchised from being able to access fresh, healthy, nutritious food um, within their communities because the grocery store is, lo- is located at such a far distance or in a neighboring town. Um, I think another challenge is, is access to land, mm-hmm. right? Is, yeah, is, definitely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, th- um, I just want to name uh, the, the use of the term food desert is something that we really try to avoid. Um, and for a couple of reasons, one of them being that, you know, it's very, very intentional where those grocery stores are placed, right? It's Mm -hmm. not just that there's an absence of food in one area that didn't happen by accident, right? We call it food apartheid, right? That that it's been decided, you know, in, in Oakland, um, where I live. Uh, there's a very clear dividing line, the 580 freeway divides, you know, Mm -hmm. where there are grocery stores, where there are not, and um, where, you know, wealthier people, mostly white folks live on one side of the freeway Mm -hmm. where there are grocery stores, and it's mostly um, Black and Latinx and other people of color who live in the flatlands where there are less grocery stores. So that's one reason why. But the other one actually gets back to what we were talking about in terms of traditional knowledge. And... um, my sister uh, Lillian Hill um, from Hopi Nation really reminded me and all of us that her community and other desert communities, indigenous folks, have actually been growing food and feeding themselves in deserts for thousands. Yeah, of years. That's and a that really for us point. to say that uh, a desert is not a place with food actually erases so much um, knowledge and brilliance and tradition that we're actually all going to need as we face more and more drought too. Thank you for sharing that perspective because, you know, I haven't come across that. It's not something that's really talked about in the academic literature, and we should be talking about this because you're absolutely right. My mind's kind of blown right now. You're absolutely right. This is, <laughs> yeah. 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 Wow. Brilliance. Um, but but what you just said about access to land is actually, you know, a really important point for us to remember, not only in terms of who has access to land to be able to um, grow their own food today, but also the fact that here in the in the U.S., having having land, having a home, is so much of how people build capital and build wealth. But uh, for us to remember when we're talking about, you know, who are the communities that have been most marginalized, most disenfranchised, that um, those are that that's an intentional system that has excluded folks from mm-hmm. having access to land and um, the building of wealth. And when we when we think about the foundations of this food system that we have, this dominant food system that we have now in this country is obviously a really harmful food system in so many ways, but the dominant system before the land was stolen from indigenous people was not. The dominant system was a, there were thriving food systems here, right? That worked yeah. um, with nature and, um, what we have now is the result of land theft and genocide, cultural and physical genocide. And then, of course, um, the, the stealing of people and their lives to work yeah. for free on that land to grow food. And that's that same um, ideology of, you know, that we can just kill off a group of people. We can exploit another people group of people for their labor in order for a handful of folks to profit is the same thing that we have today, right? Mm. We've um, 
calcified those systems with a separate class of you know who who works the land and who owns it, right? With um, immigration policy that mirrors that, right? That if you're if you're working the land, then you can be here in order to work the land um, or work in our food system, but not you know um, not ever to be in in control and have that self determination around yeah. um, our own food systems and. You know, we see that we we just see that played out in so many ways across um, not just our food system, but our society, of course, right? We see how that like, war on black and brown lives just shows up in um, in so many different ways. And uh, part of what we're talking about when we're talking about transforming our food system and getting to a place where we actually can thrive, like that requires the undoing of white supremacy, yeah. right? It requires the undoing of that colonial mindset. And mm-hmm. um, an undoing of capitalism that relies on that extraction and um, complete exploitation of people's lives. Wow. So, Navina, where can the listeners find out more about these initiatives? I'm sure there will be plenty that are going to be very interested in learning more about how to get involved, how to take action in their own communities. Um, where can they find resources to do that? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, so folks can go to our website. It's healfoodalliance.org. You can also follow us on social media. We are Heal Food on most social medias. Um, we are pretty active on Instagram and on Twitter. Um, and uh, and on our website, you can also sign up for email updates. So when there are really important action alerts, like you need to call your congressperson about the farm bill or whatever, mm-hmm. folks will get action alerts about that. And other than that, we don't, we don't send a ton of emails. We try to do like a quarterly newsletter update for folks to know what we're up to. Uh, but social media, if you want to stay on the pulse and know about our um, webinars, um, get access to those toolkits and things like that, that's the best way to do that. Um, and we do release those um, policy toolkits that I was talking about. We do release those every three months or so. And mm-hmm. we have a webinar affiliated with that, where you can actually hear from our members um, and hear about some of the amazing campaigns that they're leading in their communities. We have a a brilliant member base um, who are doing incredible work that, you know, that is everything that we're talking about. Wow. That's so exciting. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us, Navina. This has been really um, enlightening, exciting. It's, it's a complicated subject and we have to, we have to raise our awareness and, and think about ways to get involved. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks again for having me. Yeah. You've been listening to Foodie Pharmacology, the science podcast for the food curious recorded on Skype during the COVID-19 isolation period. You can find this episode and all of our others on Apple Podcasts or on our website at foodiepharmacology.com. You can also check out this video and other videos of the episode taping at our YouTube channel at T. Jeff Novotny. I want to give a big shout out to our producers, to Rob Cohen and Christine Roth for pulling this together for us. And thanks so much for listening. Stay healthy out there and I'll see you next time.